All right, so it is February 28th, last Sunday of the month of February of 2021. Two months in already into this new year. It's weird. It's weird to say that. Anyways, we are two months in. It is the last Sunday of the month. And today we are looking at the entirety of Judges chapter 4. So we've already read and studied and learned from, of course, the first three chapters. Today we are looking at all 24 verses of the fourth chapter of the book of Judges. And we've also read about three judges, right? We've read about Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. And today we are looking at perhaps, I would say there are two judges that sort of people remember the most. Samson, of course, right? The crazy strong guy, and then Deborah. And today we are studying the figure of Deborah. So let's read Judges 4, verses 1 to 24. We'll read of this fantastic story, full of so much drama and detail. It's quite interesting. So let's read. If you have a Bible open, follow with me as I read from Judges chapter 4, verses 1 to 24. This is what the Word of God reads. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Caesarea, who lived in, get this name, Harosheth Hagoyim. The sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. Now Deborah, prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor, and take with you ten thousand men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. I will draw out to you Caesarea, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. Then Barak said to her, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take. For the Lord will sell Caesarea into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together with two Kadesh and 10,000 men went up with him. Deborah also went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated himself from the Kenites, from the sons of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Za'ananim, which is near Kedesh. Then they, sold, they told Caesarea that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Caesarea called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people who were with him, from Harosheth Hagoim to the river Kishon. Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given to Caesarea into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. The Lord routed Caesarea and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Caesarea alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harosheth Hagoim, and all the army of Caesarea fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one was left. Now Caesarea fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was, a, there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Caesarea and said to him, Turn aside my master, be, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug. He said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink. Then she covered him. 
He said to her, Stand in the doorway of the tent, and it shall be if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, Is there anyone here? That you shall say, No. But Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg. This is the best part of the story, by the way. Took a tent peg and seized a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple, meaning his head, and it went through into the ground, for he was sound asleep and exhausted. So he died. And behold, as Barak pursued Caesarea, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And he entered with her, and behold, Caesarea was lying dead with the tent peg in his temple. So God subdued on that day Jabin the king of Canaan before the sons of Israel. And of the sons of Israel pressed heavier and heavier upon Jabin the king of Canaan till they had destroyed Jabin the king of Canaan. Amen. Not exactly, you know, maybe your, you know, typical Sunday sermon text, right? Um, there are encouraging moments and parts of this story, of course, but there are also parts uh, that are a little bit gruesome in detail. But there's much to learn and gain from this. As always in the Bible, there's always much to gain. So we're going to get to that. Our unreached people group of the day that we will be praying for comes from the nation we are uh, praying for. And then we go to missions too, that being Asia Minor, right? And we are praying for the Kurds in Asia Minor. If you don't know about Kurdish people, uh, it's the highest, popula highest population people group without its own nation. So I think there are about 30, 34 to 39 million of these people living in the mountain region. Kurd literally means mountain in their native tongue. It's people of the mountain. And uh, they had their country stolen from them and it got split up between iran iraq uh turkey or asia minor and syria and so they live in the mountain regions and they have no like legal rights so they don't have um, a lot of them don't have passports they don't have citizenship they don't have basic human rights uh, a, much of it has to do with political reasons and economic reasons the mountain regions of these countries contain a lot of oil and so these people are persecuted by uh the mainland sort of people like the arabs of of for example, Syria, uh, because uh, they live in very rich land uh, and prosperous land, um, and they don't want to give that land up to the Kurds, or else, of course, these four countries would lose out on that blessed oil, right? Uh, that black gold, if you will call it. And uh, so these per these people are heavily persecuted people, and we, as a church, have been serving them since even. 2000, probably 2007, we used to go to Kurdish regions in Syria and uh, preach the gospel to these people. And um, yeah, so we want to pray for them. There are a lot of these people. Uh, there are about six and a half million of them living in uh, Turkey today or Asia Minor today, and none are recorded as Christians. So we want to pray for the Kurds, um, the entirety of them, and the salvation of those people. So let's pray for that. Of course, uh, there's a lot going on in the world today, but I want to pray for a brother of ours in the church. Uh, that's Paul. Paul's restaurant, if you know, is downtown. It's called Punishik. Unfortunately, it closed down. He did successfully sell the property, so, you know, thank God for that. Um, but obviously, being a chef, being a restaurant owner has been very, very difficult uh, during this time. And unfortunately, this past week was the last week of operations. And today, uh, I think he's like selling off uh, a lot of his uh, merchandise and, you know, dishes and hardware and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, I just want to pray for him and Jenna uh, as they embark in a new sort of journey. And uh, we'll have to 
you know, obviously find new means of uh, taking care of the family. So let's pray for him. Uh, it can't be easy. You know, think about it. Your lifelong dream. You got it. And then, you know, this crazy virus thing happens and uh, it ends. And so we want to pray for them and we want to pray uh, that God would be with them and that they would trust in the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much. We thank you for your word today. We thank you for the blessing it will be onto us, that it will feed our souls. The Lord will be enlightened to the truth, even if it's a tough pill to swallow. God, we also pray for the Kurds of Asia Minor and all across the Middle East, Lord, as they are a persecuted people group, um, heavily oppressed, many of them without a lot of basic human rights that we take for granted. Lord, we pray for them. We pray for their safety and we pray for their well-being. But most importantly, we pray for their salvation. We pray, Lord God, for the gospel to be preached and shared to these people, that they would know Christ, follow him, and live a life dedicated to him. God, we pray for the church of Asia Minor and other countries in that area to be uh, mediums by which the gospel is preached. We also pray, Lord Father, for our brother Paul, sister Jenna, um, can't be easy. Obviously, it's hard uh, to lose something that you could maybe consider a child of yours, a lifelong dream, a pursuit that you had, um, and unfortunately, seeing the closure of that restaurant. But as one thing, as one chapter ends, of course, another begins. And so, Father, we ask that there would be faith and trust and hope in that family, and as they continue on and embark in a new journey, that you be with them each and every step. We pray for our brother. We pray for our sister. And pray for their encouragement at this time um, and as a church that we can be there for them uh, through our prayers and our intercessions. Thank you so much, God, um, for the opportunity to pray. All this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so our sermon is entitled today just simply Deborah and Jael. Of course, the two women of the text that are you know, given to us, they definitely are uh, the two main earthly characters, if you will. Uh, in the story. Now, the time of the judges, as we've already articulated in the very beginning of this study and this sermon series, is a very particular time in Israel's history. And it's a time in Israel's history that stands as an example, negative example, unfortunately, for all of humanity and the church today of the dangerous pattern of repeated and repeating habitual sin in our life. The nature of our sinful depravity and the beauty of God's covenantal love. So on one hand, it's a mirror unto us of our repeating sinful nature and the pattern of sin in our life. On the other, it is a wonderful depiction of God's covenantal love that when we forsake, He will not. This is the beauty of that. And so we get a demonstration, an example, although unfortunate in terms of how it comes about, of God's covenantal love, His faithfulness, and deliverance for His people. Now, we have already seen in the first three chapters of the book of Judges the mighty deliverance of God in the face of Israel's continued and continuing repetition of what is depicted or what is articulated as evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, it's simply sin. And, you know, a couple chapters ago, we talked about the nature of that depravity. What it means when the Bible says that Israel turned to the temples of Baal, right? We talked about that. We have seen the judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar, already appointed and deliver Israel even though they forsook the Lord. And then in today's chapter, we are introduced to one of the most famous and recognizable names, probably among all the judges, right? 
and definitely a standout name in maybe all of scripture, that being Deborah. And Deborah is particular and unique as a judge. Obviously, obviously, even though I don't mean to, this is not like to make this a gender situation, but because she's a female. She stands out because the Bible is so dominated by male figures, right? In fact, this actually makes her an extremely rare and unique uh, sample simply as a figure of leadership in the Bible, uh, pretty much the entirety of the Bible, because of that fact. The closest female leadership figure in Israel's history might be Queen Esther, right? But Deborah stands alone in that she is clearly the singular voice of leadership of her time. At least that's what's articulated to us. She appears to be the, that, right? Uh, that she alone is the one uh, prophesying and preaching, or not preaching, sorry, sharing um, these, these important messages to God's people. We'll get to the preaching thing. That's on my mind right now. That's why. Uh, but Deborah stands alone in that, right? The precedence that Deborah sets requires careful reading, however, a careful study and a careful inquisition to properly understand what the main teaching lesson of this narrative and figure is. And of course, that's not unique to Deborah because she's a female. It's unique. It's not unique at all. We need to do that with all of the figures of Scripture. We need to do that with David, with Daniel, with Jeremiah, with Isaiah. It doesn't matter. We need to be careful to read the text to exegete or extract that which is taught, not what we wanted to teach. That's, that's really important, okay? Now, Ehud, after all, the, the judge that we studied last week, right? The second judge who was left-handed, uh, is noted as a left-handed man, right? We talked about that, which was viewed during his time as a major, let's just call it what it was, a defect in his time. It was considered a curse, if you will. And yet, he was used by God, right, as Israel's judge. So to sit here and say, well, it's weird that God would use a female, even though there's clearly uh, indication uh, of these other like teachings in terms of the roles of male and gender or male and female uh, genders within God's, I guess, in the service of the Lord. Uh, we need to understand it properly because Deborah is used on both sides of the argument of complementarianism and egalitarianism wrongly or incorrectly, if you will. Right, And we need to be careful in reading it carefully and understanding it properly. But to focus simply on our gender would be extreme, extreme, uh, like, wrong reading of the text, right? Like, just, let's not do that. But to focus simply on that, on the gender of our protagonist today, would be doing Deborah very little justice. It's a feature that, of course, makes her stand out, like Ehud's left-handedness, but it's certainly not the main point. To only see and remember Deborah as the female judge. Now that's that would be an exegetical failure on our end. What we need to see instead in this text is what we were trying to see in all of the texts. The salvific work of God and his hand of deliverance for Israel. In spite of their continued sin. Of course, through unconventional means unconventional for the times, right? Obviously, that's what I mean. Within the context of the times of the Bible's writing, it was unconventional. I'm not saying it's unconventional today. Not to say it was ever meant to be unconventional, but unconventional certainly for the times that the Bible was written. 
that teach an emphatic point about our sin and God's deliverance. Now, at the end of the day, today's passage again is ultimately about the salvation of the Lord. So three points to the sermon today. I feel like I've become a three-point sermon guy. I never wanted to be that. But anyways, I've come down. I mean, you read the text, and if there's three points you see, there's three points you see. So, number one, no earthly leader can replace God. No earthly leader can replace God. Should replace God, really. Number two, women certainly have a place in leadership. Women certainly have a place in leadership. We're going to break that down. And then finally, probably the most important point, salvation belongs to the Lord. So just those three points, right? Number one, no earthly leader can replace God. Women have a place in leadership. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So let's break down the first point. No earthly leader can replace God. Verse 1 reads like this. Then the sons of Israel again. again. Can you imagine being the person writing this? It's like, oh, again. And he's still got, what, 17 chapters left to write? The sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. After, here's the note, after Ehud died. Ehud's death thus, another death of a judge, is the marker. And it's followed by yet again the return to evil ways by Israel in the sight of the Lord. Now at this point, this is a pattern of sinful habit, right? And what it reveals is a very true reality regarding both Israel and ourselves. Now to read this and go, oh, Israel did it again, is like reading the New Testament, reading about, let's just call it what it is, the stupidity of the, of the disciples sometimes, and going, how could they do that? <laughs> right? Even in the Exodus, when Israel is freed from slavery and they're wandering in the desert and they're complaining about the lack of things, not remembering what they've been freed from, you wonder, how could they do that? How could they be like that? But brothers and sisters, we are no different. We're prone to do exactly the same. And so it is a pattern of sinful habit. And it reveals a reality both in Israel at the time and the reality of our own lives. Perhaps we are too reliant on outside forces being the controlling factor of our behavior rather than genuine faith within ourselves, right? We always talk about this in sort of the Protestant circles, a genuine, uh, sorry, that outward expression of our faith, meaning action, speech, these good deeds, so to speak, these godly actions we speak of, stem and should stem from genuine internal faith. So true transformation stems from true uh, transformative gospel-centeredness within our hearts, right? So a faith leads to the action, if you will. I remember being in elementary school and just how different my behavior was. Maybe this is the same for you. When the teacher's in the room, everybody's behaving. The rules apply. Everybody's obeying. No one's doing stupid things. As soon as the teacher leaves the room, or you know what the best day of the year, or one of the best days, other than like holidays, you know what one of the best days? When you have a substitute. And when you have a substitute who has no idea what they're doing, that's the best. You know why? You do whatever you want. <laughs> you get away with it, right? That's what happens when the authority figure is you can't respect them or is non-present altogether what happens to your behavior how do you really behave the way you want to you immediately shift and default to what you want to do right but then you need to ask the question does the presence of the teacher dictate my behavior and is that my true behavior or is the absence of the teacher and the behavior that i display at that moment my true behavior 
I'll argue that it's the latter. Now, Ralph Davis writes this as a commentary on the book of Judges. He writes, There is something wrong with religion when its degree of fidelity depends solely on outside pressures, influences, and leadership. Then we are only, air quote, Christian only because of our surroundings or because of the expectations of Christian people around us and lack a genuine internal work of God. Israel's repetition of doing evil in the sight of the Lord as soon as the judge dies, in this case Ehud, is, is the equivalent of us changing our behavior when the teacher leaves the room, which is also the equivalent of us sinning when nobody's around. Brothers and sisters, during this pandemic, when you were in lockdown and you're just in your rooms by yourself, what are you doing? What are you doing? What we fail to comprehend in these moments and in those moments is that God's authority is not reliant on the presence of a pastor in the room, of an elder in the room, of a deacon in the room, of a parent in the room, or a discipler. It's not dependent on a judge being alive. It's not dependent on the presence of an earthly figure. And this is the failure of Israel to recognize this. They only behaved when the judge was alive. And as soon as he died, they just reverted back to their evil ways. God's rule ultimately must remain constant in our lives, no matter who is around. But we grow to depend on our earthly leaders. We grow to rely on these people. And it's not to degrade these people. It's not to say, okay, Max is telling me, disregard my pastor, disregard my elder, disregard my discipler, disregard all these people. All I need is God. I don't need the community. That's not what I'm saying. There's certainly gain from those things. There's certainly reason for those things. There's certainly positive aspects of having those people in our lives. But they certainly aren't your God. And they shouldn't be. We shouldn't treat them that way. But remember, this idea can go two ways. We can either stop being Christian, air quote, when nobody's around. And, or we can also only be a Christian when someone is around. Two sides of the same coin. I know I'm saying the same thing, but they're two slightly different perspectives of the same action. What I want to make is the point that I think Jesus was trying to make to the Pharisees and the crowds in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. On one hand, we need to be careful of being only God un, or sorry, of being ungodly because there's nobody around to hold me accountable. I can do whatever I want. On the other, we need to be careful of only being godly because there's somebody around to see my godly behavior. You know how I, you know how, um, you know how funny this is, right? Like when I was a, a campus minister and we would go on these campus retreats and we'd bring the frosh, right? The first campus retreat, we bring the frosh together. And you know what happens with frosh? You got hormones flying around. It's got a bunch of like, you know, hormonally challenged men, uh, these young, you know, 18, 20 year olds who are just looking for a girlfriend, right? And so they go to these retreats and they're just in love with this one girl, this infatuated with it. And you can tell, I mean, like, uh, at this point, like, I'm, an, I'm a slightly mature adult. I can tell when the guy likes a girl. It's pretty obvious. You know why? Because his behavior changes. His mannerism changes. He commits to things that he would have never committed to if this girl didn't commit either. I did the same thing. I was in love in high school. You know what I, you know what I did? I joined band. I hate band. I don't know why I did it, but she was in band, so I joined band. We do these stupid things out of these stu for these stupid reasons. Why? Because external forces and factors influence us in this way. We need to be careful. 
yes, of being ungodly when there's no one around, but also of being only godly or so-called Christian because of the people around us. There's a careful balance we need to maintain. Jesus warns and teaches this crowd in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 of this exact thing. That he looks at these Pharisees who are publicly praying. They pull out these prayer mats and they pray in public streets. They're crying out to God with these long-winded prayers. And they're just like flaunting their holiness, so to speak, right? And what does Jesus say in light of this in Matthew 6? Go to your room. Lock the door and pray. Stop flaunting this around. Our faithfulness is not something we are to publicly display for the for some kind of adoration and, and admiration from the public community. This is a trap. And we can be guilty of both traps, both being ungodly, no one's around, and only being godly when people are around. Very, 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 very dangerous to fall into this. A fresh reminder for us today, of course, is Ravi Zacharias, right? But he's not the only one. I don't want to bash him here. He's already been bashed enough. He's not the first nor the last leader, so-called leader, of the faith that is living a double life. One of public ministry and one of private sin. We are all guilty of this to some sort. Of course we are. The question is, are you repentant of it? But it just goes to show that no earthly human leader is in fact perfect we can respect the godliness of men and women of the faith but with the firm understanding that they are not jesus christ they are not the perfect example of godliness but of course the grave error we make because we're human just like israel is that we become attached and reliant, overly reliant, on our earthly heroes, if you will, in place of who? Our heavenly Savior. Why do we do this? I wondered. I thought about this. I wrote a couple things down. I think it's because we can see them, we can hear them, and we can meet them physically. So we revere them. Whereas God is this invisible, perfect being that we don't so-called see or hear or meet, at least in a physical sense. And this is the allure of the, anoint, of the anointed of God, the men and women that God anoints and appoints to serve as leaders of His community. We, are, we need to be careful here, brothers and sisters. We are not to make idols out of these men and women. We are not. The irony is that the judges were sent to draw Israel out of their pagan idolatry. And even in their success in doing that, Israel appears to have made someone of an idol out of the judges. Let us be weary in doing the same. Let us be careful in doing this. That's point number one. Be careful. Be careful to understand no earthly leader can replace God. Point number two. Women have a place in leadership. Before I go into this point, Obviously, it's going to be a sensitive topic. I knew that going into this. I knew there would be people who would disagree with me. People are going to watch this and be totally offended by what I'm about to say. Obviously. But I want to make it clear where my stance is on a biblical premise, give you my points, and feel free to disagree. Feel free to disagree on this. Absolutely. No problem. My position in Scripture is this. 
And it still holds true with this point of women being having a place in leadership. And that is this. I am a complementarian. And what that means, and I'll go into that, is that I read the Bible and I see a creative order for everyone involved. Deborah is a clear and obvious example of God's desire to use both men and women to lead his people. I believe that. But that statement must not be taken out of its context or without firm biblical understanding and premise of God's natural creative order for all things. Now, being a complementarian, meaning that I believe this, that God and his word teach that men and women were created with equal intrinsic value, dignity, and worth. They're equal creative creations. Not one is more important than the other. However, I also believe that the two genders made in God's image and likeness were created with intended roles and responsibilities that they are to serve in the home, the congregation of God's people, and today being the church, and society, public service. Men are created to serve a particular role as, as well as women. The role does not dictate or define importance. And this is where the sensitive 2021 mind will immediately jump to and go. That's a point I cannot agree with. How can a difference in role and responsibility mean equality? I'll get to that. Now, even though sinful mankind will view it in a distorted manner, especially in times like these, when issues of gender and racial equality are of course sensitive topics for many of us, I'm not trying to discredit that. I understand the arguments. Consider this, however. Consider this, because this is what drew me to complementarianism. Consider this point. The persons of the Trinity, the persons being the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, okay, are co-equal members of the Godhead, right? All with equal divine power, authority, and glory. I've met a lot of egalitarians, and no one has disagreed with me. I asked them, do you believe that each member of the Trinity holds to an intrinsic, equal, co-equal, divine uh, presence? Like, whatever you will, right? That they are all God, in essence. Yet, what? This is where... This is the point that's important to me. The son's role, Jesus Christ, the son's role differs from the father's. And the father's differs from the spirit's. And the spirit's role differs from the son. But would you ever say that the father is more important because of his role? Or that the son is less important because of his role? Or the spirit is less than the father and the son because, because of his role? Would you? I wouldn't. So if you're not going to apply the same logic to the Godhead, the ones made in that image and likeness, why would you say? Why would you say that that is, it's different for us. It's different in the male gender equation, but it's not, it, it's, it's, it's different in the Godhead. So back to Deborah, right? Keeping that in mind. Because obviously I could have a whole sermon on that, but we're not preaching on Titus 1 or 2 Timothy or 1 Timothy 3. If men are to serve in the role of headship in home, faith, community, and society, right? Why is Deborah appointed here as a leader in the, in the service of God? We need to ask this question. Well, we'll have to consider many factors exactly what those factors teach. Because on one hand, as a complementarian, you could view this and go, well, this is an issue. Because Deborah's a leader, she's clearly a prophetess, like she's 
sharing things, right? Like, we need to be careful here. But on the other hand, as an egalitarian, you might look at this and go, this is evidence of our point. This is evidence of our argument that God uses, you know, women, position of leadership. And I agree with you. That's, that's why I don't disagree. Women obviously have a certain role and can function in the role of leadership in the community of God. But what role is the question we need to ask? Israel was in complete disarray. So we need to understand the context here. They are in complete physical and spiritual disarray. Physically, they've lost their home. They're under slavery. They're, they're basically getting tortured. And if you skip over to Judges 5, read in the Song of Deborah, like basically uh, implications of, of rape that was occurring, we see just torture for Israel. So on one hand, they're physically suffering. On the other, they're also spiritually suffering. They're suffering in their forsakenness of God, their faith, unfaithfulness towards God, their covenantal breaking, all of these things. One commentator writes on Deborah's appointment as a leader in this way. This indicates the pitiful state of the priesthood of Israel at the time. Another commentator writes, her prominence implies a lack of qualified and willing men. Don't read that as some sort of slight against women or a slight against, you know, like, oh, she's only a leader because men suck. That's not what the point is. It's a slight against the men who are incapable of serving at the time. God will gladly use a woman to, or anyone for that matter. He can use a donkey if he wanted to wake up a nation if all the men are faithless and unworthy of service. There are a total of seven women prophetesses in the Old Testament by Jewish records and standards. Sarah, Miriam, Deborah, Hannah, Abigail, and Esther. That's what Jewish people recognize as seven uh, of the seven prophetesses in the Old Testament. But their service of the Lord varies and varied, and Deborah is the only one that served as a judge. Now this does not equate to the modern practice of preaching. Clearly. Why? Because the other so-called female prophetesses did not function in a teaching role Neither did Deborah. Their main function was not teaching from text. Paul writes, of course, on the premise of creation order in the New Testament in his epistles that women are, for example, in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, that women are not permitted to exercise authority, meaning teach over men. That doesn't mean that they're inferior or incapable of doing that. But just like we have biological differences that dictate our role in birthing a child, for example, so too is there a specific creative role mandated and given by Scripture and by God in His creation order of the pastoral practice of preaching to men by men. But what Deborah was doing under that palm tree is the question, right? Because what, what does it read? Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, which literally means illumination, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah. It's her palm tree, I suppose. <laughs> Between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for what? For judgment. So what does that mean? It doesn't mean the modern practice of preaching to the community. It just doesn't. It's not equatable. We don't see a, that precedent set anywhere in Scripture. Would you say Samson is the equivalent of the modern uh, pastor or Ehud or Shamgar? Shamgar literally had an ox goat and he just slaughtered 600 Philistines and we call him a judge. Right? So I don't understand where this connection is made. When the argument is made, oh, Deborah is the example that women can preach on the pulpit. It's not a good example because there's no example of it. 
in her ministry. If you'll call it that. There's no example of that. Right? But what Deborah is doing under that palm tree is something we need to think about. And what the most I could extract, the, I mean, I rarely go to like modern Christian commentaries on this. I try to go like older ones. And if, if I can, I go to Jewish commentaries on the Old Testament because we tend to read the Hebrew better. And every indicate, almost every single commentary that I went through un, trying to understand this verse indicates nothing like the sort of reading a text and teaching, teaching to the community. This prophesying that she was doing, so to speak, or this act of judging these people when the sons of Israel came to her for judgment was more equatable to us sitting under a palm tree and sharing the gospel. Now, if a woman today were to sit under a tree, or let's just say sat at the corner of Young and Dundas and preached and shared the gospel, as a complementarian, would I go up to her and go, that's ungodly and unbiblical for you to do? Absolutely not. It's ridiculous. Right? The modern rendition of this, this task that she was doing, this act of judging the sons of Israel, is more equitable to that. The sharing of the gospel to sinful men. So we need to be careful. We need to be careful when we read this. Not only that, brothers and sisters, but we've already defined what a judge is, right? In Judges 1, what did I tell you? Judge, the word judge means one thing. Deliverer, leader, or warrior. Most of these judges are leading military action, not so much spiritual. There's a spiritual component to the physical reality of their leadership, but it's not their main task. We need to be careful in reading this. Verse 8, Barak, the so-called commander of the army, testifies to us of the inadequacy of the men of Israel of her time. Look at Barak, this so-called warrior, this so-called commander of the Israelite army. What is, what is he saying in verse 8? I will go with you only if you go with me. I'm not going unless you go. He's terrified to lead men into battle. He requests the presence of this female prophetess to be with him, as if she can hold a sword and fight. I don't think she does that. Maybe she did. Perhaps she's a strong warrior. I'm not suggesting she isn't. But he, there's no indication of that. So the, the fact that he's requesting this is, is quite peculiar. She's already given him the guarantee of victory in battle, and yet he's He's reliant on the presence of this person being with him. It says a lot. It says the men of Israel have lost faith in God and his word. He's lost faith in God altogether. The men of Israel have lost a sense of their role in society. And they would lean on unconventional means. All this said, Deborah demonstrates to us that of course women have a place in leadership. Of course, both in home, in church, society. Now, that role may differ from their male counterparts biblically, but it certainly does not indicate a lesser importance. And this is the point I want to get across. I was reading this article in TGC um, written by a local pastor here, actually, in Oakville. And his name is Paul Carter. And he writes on Deborah, and he says this, To say that Deborah was a prophetess and a leader in Israel does not seem to say anything directly about whether or not women should be preachers in the church today. There's no connection. There's no connective tissue from this text to the 
1 Timothy 3 or the Titus 1 text. Women are the primary caretakers of children, for example, in Scripture. Proverbs teaches us that women teach your children the ways of God. Women are to teach younger women, right, how to be mature women of God. We read this in the epistles of the, New, of the New Testament. Women can certainly serve in roles in the church where they are leaders who exemplify Christ's likeness and maturity of the faith to both men and women. The Bible certainly tells us in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 that the role of elder overseer or what we call a pastor today is, of course, to be a male. But that's not the only role of leadership in the church today. Certainly, women can serve in different capacities and use their God-given gifts in the service of the community of God. Absolutely. There's no indication in Scripture that this is not allowed, that this is disallowed. Nowhere. We're not great, but we're not at the point at which Israel was at in this narrative. Right? Let us not hope for the day when God is sending us left-handed judges, and donkeys for that matter, or anything else to wake us up out of our spiritual slumber. Right? We should be grateful for the men and women who are in, in the service of God and are preaching His word faithfully. We should, be, we should be thankful for that. Absolutely. Final point, salvation belongs to the Lord. Verses 9 and 14 act to me as the pillars or the hinge or the framework, of, if you will, of this entire narrative. Verse 9 gives us Deborah's prophecy that Caesarea will certainly be delivered into Israel's hands by the hands of a woman. It's a really important um, point, right? I mean, it's, it must have been for Barak anyway. Like, what? What do, you, what do you mean by that? I think he was probably thinking, oh, that means Deborah's going to go and like slaughter all these guys, right? And then you have verse 14, right? The promise and prophecy of guaranteed victory. That God has already gone out before us, or you in the, in the case of, uh, for, for Barak, He's, he's a go. And these two prophecies act as a certainty of deliverance and salvation by the hand of God. Now, as much as we are reminded in the book of Judges about the cyclical pattern of sin, as I mentioned earlier, we are equally reminded, of course, of the pattern of God's deliverance of his people. Temporary punishments brought upon us as a result of our unfaithfulness and sins against God should be treated as gifts disguised as suffering sometimes, right? It's not disguised for the purpose of like disguising it and tricking us. I'm just saying sometimes we don't understand the purpose behind some of these punishments and sufferings we receive. And in Israel's case, I don't think they were able to comprehend it either. We should treat these things at times in understanding uh, that they are leading us to repentance and at times are God's methods of taking us away from that which is most harmful for us. Remember what we talked about in Judges 1. The most love, one of the most loving things that God does for us is literally shake us out of our sin. And it comes in the form of wrath against our sin. This is how terrible and how deep our sinful tendencies are and lie within our very nature. And it takes that kind of punishment to make us realize the evil of our ways. I love how when wrong is done to us, when evil is done against us, when someone does something terrible against you, we desire absolute punishment, absolute justice, perfect legal justice against those who have wronged us, right? And yet, we want a blind eye to our own evils. Essentially, all of us are selfish in this. We want the evils of others justly punished, but not our own. We want a God who will ex excuse me, but judge others. It's terrible thinking. It's a double standard. 
It's marvelous to read of Jael here. Much like Ehud, we can debate the ethical nature of the murder of Caesarea, but we cannot be distracted from God's deliverance through such unusual means. And here's the greatest part of this whole narrative for me, and if you didn't catch it, you'll catch it this time as soon as I read it to you. Verse 7. What does it read there? It reads, I will draw you I will draw out to you Caesarea, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his army troops to the river Kishon. Now, why would that geographical detail be there? Book of Judges is exact. It's precise in giving us details that help us understand how this entire narrative unfolded. They draw their enemy to the river Kishon, and in chapter 5, when we fast forward and we'll read it next week, in the Song of Deborah, we are told that God had brought a storm that day. What happens when there's a storm and a body of water, like a stream or a river? It starts to rise. And as that river rises, what happens? It creates mud, and it creates around it a setting in which chariots of iron, no matter how fierce and mighty they could be, cannot move. God stuck those chariots that they could not move. God. Verse 11. We're given this really weird address change. <laughs> now Heber, the Kenite, had separated himself from the Kenites from the sons of Hobab. No reason. Uh, the father-in-law of Moses had pitched his tent at Faraway's Oak in Za'ananim, which is near Kadesh. Why? Why is that detail there? It doesn't connect the previous story to the next. It's just a random detail. Only later does it make sense. And later, how does it make sense? Heber, a lowly figure, no status, no importance up until this point, just a random character, is given a verse indicating his change of address. Why? Because his wife is Jael. And for some reason, this change of address actually sets up the death of Caesarea and the fulfillment of the prophecy of verse 9. Right when Caesarea needs help and shelter, the most random of places, he encounters Heber, this Kenite, who his family just happens to be allies with. So he... You know, just mindlessly goes in. He's like, of course, you are a Kenite. You are a helper. Well, I don't know why you're here, but help me, right? And so he goes, sure, rest in my home. And he lies down, and that leads to his death. And at the hand of a woman, he dies. God, again. And then verse 23, if it wasn't clear already, the author makes it clear for you. God subdued on that day. Wraps it up nicely for you. If you don't get these little tidbits, you don't see the providence of God at work in the text, you're missing out. You're missing out. In conclusion, to wrap things up, let me reiterate the points we've made today and then give you a final thought. Number one, our one true leader is God, right? The earthly leaders we have can and will fail us, even the good ones. They are temporary at best. Remember that God is your true leader. Do not forsake him, for he does not forsake you. Point two, Women certainly have a place in leadership in the home, the church, and society. A different role from men, certainly, but of equal value, worth, dignity, and respect. As you mature in the faith, become a leader of the faith, whether you are male or female, and help others to do the same. You are not discouraged in, the, in doing this at all, no matter who you are. And finally, point three, remember that salvation belongs to the Lord. I know it sounds like such a cliche point. It sounds like I've heard that a million times in the church. But have you really heard it? Are you really looking back at your life and noticing things like this? Random address changes. Random acts of storms coming into the most 
opportune moments of time. Look back at your life. Record these things. One of the reasons I have a journal is so that I won't forget the way that God providentially brings me to where I am now. This is our reality. It is our past. It is our present and our future. He is our hope and our anchor because His Word always stands true. His providence is certainty of a cross delivered and every day mercy anew and a hope of a future assured. Deborah spoke into a time and culture as a person that would have difficulty garnering a voice or a platform and she spoke faithfully to an audience that was in need. May our lips, like hers, be full of gospel and Christ-centered messages of faith, repentance, and salvation to our audience of need. May we be used, as Deborah was, for the purposes of changed hearts and salvation in the Lord. Let's pray together what we've gained and reflected on in God's Word.